For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to the Best Morning Routine Ever podcast, the show that proves no one stumbles upon success ever. With your host, Lou Need. Every Mondays and Thursdays, we deliver cold heart evidence behind the power of a robust morning routine. Get ready to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Hello, morning enthusiasts. Welcome to the Best Morning Routine Ever podcast. I am your host, Dr. Lou Mead, and today it's an honor to introduce a very special guest to the show, Professor India Tusi. She is a professor of law at the India University Moorer School of Law with a joint appointment at the Kinsey Institute. Her research examines, get this, racial and sexual hierarchies as they relate to policing, race, and gender. Her articles and essays have been published and they're all forthcoming in the Harvard Law Review, NYU Review. And so it's an honor to have her on board because we want to talk about some of her work and her how she got into it. But also let's talk about her success and her morning routine. So with no further ado, Professor India, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. It's a pleasure. Thank you again for taking the time. Today, we want to talk about your success and also how it begun. So let's let's start there, right? Let's talk about your journey of why you decided law school and in that specific niche. Sure. Um, so I actually knew I wanted to be a lawyer when I was pretty young, when I was a child. Um, I think my uncle asked me once when I was like eight years old or something what I wanted to be. And I just said lawyer. I had no sense of what it even meant. <laughs> he asked me if I like to argue. I said, no, I don't like to argue. That sounds terrible. <laughs> but I think it's just something that kind of stuck with me. And then when I went to high school, you know, I noticed some of the inequities that existed um, in society in terms of just the resources available to different high schools. I went to a school where it was mostly Black students, and I mm-hmm. saw how aggressively policed people were. And I think at that point, I, I knew I was interested in maybe doing criminal law or focusing on that to really kind of respond to these inequities. You know, mm-hmm. I had always had this, a lot of negative interactions with the police and saw that, you know, this just wasn't right. And I think when I went to college and eventually law school, I realized just how uh, disproportionate things were and how discriminatory they were. And so um, from those personal experiences, I, I, I wanted to focus on addressing some of these inequities. And I uh, was a civil rights lawyer after law school. I worked at the ACLU. And then I also you know, worked for some judges who really kind of focused on taking a civil rights and human rights approach to, to mm-hmm. the law. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You said that it started so young and so early on for you. It was almost like it was innate, right? It was, it was like a gift. <laughs> I don't know the how, <laughs> but I know I wanted to be a lawyer. And the things you talk about, they're real because I went to a high school where we had a metal detector. 
Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to my friends who live on the other side of town, they didn't have that issue. So what, and you sound like you, you went to, to a similar situation. Tell us what impact that has on a mentality of a young man, a young woman growing up who's barely, who just turned through a teenager. Yeah, I think it has a terrible impact. I, I went to a similar high school. We had um, metal detectors. Um, we had what they call school resource officers, police in schools, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it it switches you from being someone who's taken in education, who can aspire to anything, to knowing that at some point, a lot of these people are going to just end up in prisons, right? Mm-hmm. And it just shifts that frame of mind. And I think your mindset and the, the way your sense of belief really impacts the outcomes that you have in life, right? And so if you're getting that message you know, while you're in school, that could be really problematic. And it's it's not even effective to take that approach, you know? Instead, people could be developing relationships with students and you know, making sure you have a close relationship and connected to what's happening in the school student body if you're really um, concerned with safety, as opposed to treating students like like criminals. Yeah. And then it's almost like survival mode versus, as you mm-hmm. said, the ability to learn and knowing that what's the point? It's almost discouraging, right? Like, yeah. what's the point of pursuing this education? What's the point of moving forward or getting good grades if you're so busy concerned with your your safety, your survival? Exactly, exactly. And, and you're told that you're limited in terms of what you're able to achieve, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, the interesting thing is going from that environment, I went to college where it was predominantly white institution. The student backgrounds were like completely different from that from when I was in high school. And, you know, some of the stuff people were doing were similar, but despite that, there was still a sense of, even if I were to smoke marijuana once when I was, you know, 18, that they could still go on and be doctors and lawyers and it's not going to be this huge burden. Whereas, you know, for someone who was in some of these other communities where I was in high school, you know, you just end up in jail and that's just your pipeline, right? And you get diverted away from opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that has moved from just the walls of the school to our community, to society now, right? In the last few years, we've seen it took a turn for the worse. Um, let's talk about that um, specifically because, you know, your expert is in racial and uh, that aspect of it. So it, it goes from the school, from our, to our small community to now it's a global movement. To, to actually see that that take place in the last few years. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think soon after I graduated from um, high school and, and college, you know, there was this concern around this issue of the school to prison pipeline, how mm-hmm. you know, students, mostly students of color, were being pushed into the criminal system. And I think now, you know, given all the events that have happened from Breonna Taylor's murder, George Floyd's death, there's a sense that this intense policing and criminalization is really harmful, um, that in fact, it doesn't protect people and exposes them to violence, violence from the state. And so, you know, really trying to reexamine how we treat everyone, ensure that we have equal opportunity for everyone, regardless of your skin color, um, I think is, you know, getting a lot more attention than it has in the past. I think, you know, with video footage and cell phone really demonstrating and giving evidence of, you know, some of the inequities that have always occurred, um, people are more open to, um, you know, addressing some of these harms. And, and we've been seeing it recently. Mm-hmm. It's impacting everyone. 
it's mm-hmm. impacting everyone. We'd like to think it's, it's just a, a small group. It's just a minority of people. Uh, but it is. It's, a, it's an overall um, movement. And, you know, I have to say I've been very pleased to see the, the involvement of the rest of the community joining in and supporting this cause, saying, you know, enough is enough. You know, so that has really um, been the light to kind of help to bring to light what's been going on. I think uh, Will Smith said racism has always been happening. Now we have an iPhone to shine the light on it, to be able to see it, to be able to actually um, bring publicize it almost in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's now now impossible to kind of you turn your eye away from it and avoid what we're seeing and what we're observing. Right. And now we're just being forced to really confront some of these, you know, issues that have long been a part of society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us about what are some racial and sexual hierarchies and how do they impact the lives of women? Yeah. So, you know, the way that I think about racial and sexual hierarchies is that they often intersect with each other to create unique harms for people. And so that's kind of building off of this idea of intersectionality that, you know, you can have racial discrimination that compounds with sexism. You might have a distinct form of discrimination that a group can experience. Right. And so there might be particular prejudices around, you know, Native American women and their mothering, right? That's particular to them as both a racialized group as well as, you know, a sexual group. Mm -hmm. And then the same for Black women, right? A lot of the, you know, some of the stereotypes about Black women, we saw it even, you know, pretty recently with, um, before Biden was selecting his Supreme Court pick, right? There was a lot of outcry when there was, um, you know, some mention that it it would be a black woman. And then some people were suggesting that, you know, how can we be sure that this person would be competent, right? How can we sure that this would be the right person? And I think that's a, you know, perfect example of critiquing and, you know, illustrating some of the the stereotypes around black women in particular, this presumption that they won't be competent and able to do the job, that there's something about being a black woman that, you know, you find really um, threatening. And, you know, I I think it can be a real challenge because we didn't see these same commentators making these remarks when President Trump pledged to nominate a woman to the Supreme Court. That was Amy Coney. It ended up being Amy Coney Barrett. We didn't see all this outcry that he was limiting the pool to just women. And that's just 50 percent of the population, because I think it was understood that probably would be a white woman. And there was a more of acceptance that white women could be competent, whereas, unfortunately, black women are often against this perception that they're going to be incompetent. Now, given his pick, it's pretty clear that this person is extraordinarily, you know, beyond competence and, and you know, well qualified, mm-hmm. but still this kind of racialized trope that played out in the media. And, and it affects, you know, the everyday lives of you know people who deal with these types of you know stereotypes and these types of uh, discrimination every day in, in so many different ways. You know, I focus on the criminal system. And, you know, what the harms that come from policing, because that often can result in violence. And so, you know, what I've observed is that, you know, depending on who you are, your racial identity, your sexual identity, the type of policing you get is qualitatively different. Mm -hmm. Um, I focus a lot on sex workers and I found that, you know, lighter skinned or whiter sex workers might receive a type of policing that's more benevolent or kinder, whereas, you know, blacker sex workers could be treated as more disposable, right, by the police and less, you know, worthy of protection. And so that can create some harms. Mm -hmm. And that is sad to hear. 
right? And mm-hmm. just the example you said, not being um, competent enough and then after being put in that role to see that, or you're surpassing um, mm-hmm. that role. And so how does one push forward in that situation? Well, you know, I think being aware of the fact that there are these systemic barriers is important, right? Just be mentally prepared for that. But at the same time, continuing to do the work that you want to do, remaining committed and passionate, relying on mentors to help support you as you go along the way, relying on your peers and your friends to help you and support you as you're going along the way. That way you can also know that, you know, your experience is not unique. Um, You know, one of the things I, I try to counsel law students about is, you know, these are some of the barriers that they'll encounter even when they go into the legal profession, right? They might have partners who, um, you know, make certain remarks or have certain assumptions about their abilities. And, you know, it's kind of, it could be a little bit pessimistic and, and discouraging in some ways, but to know it in advance and kind of be prepared for it. And at the same time, work with others to ensure that other people don't have these barriers, um, I think can be empowering in a way. And to know that, you know, sometimes women and people of color can be in these positions and wonder, did I really experience that? Maybe this was all in my head. Like, did did they mean that or did they mm-hmm. mean this? Maybe I'm just the one that's the problem here. And to know that, no, in fact, you're not the problem here. That should not have happened. You know, mm-hmm. there people have these biases. You know, maybe you can reach out to other people who have had similar experiences. And that just that step alone, I think, could be pretty empowering. I'm um, just to be able to acknowledge it. And then, you know, once you get more empowered and you have the ability trying to, you know, ensure that these institutions don't remain that way and that, you know, other people don't have those same experiences, I think ends up being pretty important too. Mm-hmm. What you just referred to is internalized racism too, right? Mm-hmm. When we, when it's, it's the norm, it's all we see, it's all we're exposed to. We begin to doubt ourselves. Mm-hmm. We begin to be, to believe that we're not competent or we're not enough or we can't do this or we don't belong, um, what we like mm-hmm. to call the imposter syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. And so it gets challenging. And so the, the effort is to really work on that mentally, that mindset that you talked about to ensure that we don't fall into that. Because that's exactly what how it's designed to do, to kind of break a man, break their mind, you break them, essentially, and so to kind of release that that barrier of internalizing what's happening and, and it, let it stop in you in your track. It's almost like you have to push forward and be strong and continue to what you do, what you're doing. I like that you said, continue to work on what you're passionate about, keep moving forward, and then the path will, will make a way for you. And I appreciate um, the honesty on that behalf. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also, you know, by sharing your experience or, you know, finding community to support you as you might have these experiences, I think it'd be really empowering and may allow you to eliminate some of these barriers. You know, even with this Supreme Court nominee, there's a group, She Will Rise, that organized to assure that they would support a Black woman being nominated to the Supreme Court and other courts. And just working in community can actually be a really effective way to dismantle these systems so people don't have to continue to have these, you know, barriers before them. Yeah. Tell us about your latest publication. Sure. So my latest publication is a book, Policing Bodies, and it's about the policing of sex work in South Africa. And so in this book, 
you know, I really examined the ways that policing is occurring. And I found that, you know, if we are really concerned with the well-being of sex workers and just ensuring people are empowered and receive the services they need, that approach that is more like decriminalization actually would probably be the preferable approach. Because once you introduce police into a situation where they're dealing with marginalized groups, that there is this risk of violence, right? And that's not police officers are not there to be trained social workers. They're there to arrest people and to force that law, that law in a pretty violent way. And, you know, what I observed by working with the police and with sex workers were the ways that, you know, violence could be reproduced when you have more policing, which might be counterintuitive for people because they expect police to protect people. When in fact, you know, what I observed is that police often brought, you know, violence to this community. And so, you know, I, I kind of use this as an example of, you know, pushing us to think of what are other ways to bring protection to people without relying on police, right? How can we really ensure that we can prevent harm without relying on just policing and criminalization? And I think, you know, that's what we need to be discussing more in society. How do we, you know, ensure that people have access to housing and have their basic needs met and just provide for society as opposed to funding a lot of police and then, you know, communities be really deprived? How do we? I think we fund communities and stop funding police as much as we do. I think that's really important. What was interesting was that, you know, even though I interviewed a lot of police officers, almost all of them agreed that decriminalization would be preferable, which was interesting and something I wasn't expecting. They didn't think that they should be focusing so much on, you know, enforcing sex work or dealing with with sex work. Right. And so I think we rely on police to do a lot of things in society that we really shouldn't be relying on them to do. Like, I think Mm -hmm. we can substantially, you know, shrink police and then provide for community groups, provide for groups that are going to be focused on like sex workers, for example, or it could be people who are dealing with housing issues, mental health issues, whatever the case may be, and and you to really work in community with them. And I think that would actually bring a lot more protection to communities. I do agree with you. I'm working on a project right now. We're not focusing on just putting a Band-Aid on social issues, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to eradicate them at the root cause. And that entails community efforts of, you know, you can have 11,000 um, nonprofits. 500 of them are trying to solve the same social issue. You know, how do we collaborate? How do we come together to actually put our forces together so that we can provide the resources on every level for, say, the community, for that individual to end that social issue instead of just trying to um, to fix it at the surface level? So I do agree and see where you're coming from in terms of actually um, helping the community out in that way versus just uh, the criminalized and, and having the cops just spend so much time just plucking away at it, but not really making a dent. I'm solving okay. the issue. Exactly. Yeah, 100% agree with you on that. And I cannot imagine their work is easy. You know, I cannot imagine that the police officers are having a, a field day in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it could be a real waste of resources. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Tell us about your morning routine. How do you get up, dress up and show up? How are you able to show up every day to do what you do? Sure. Um, so my morning routine starts pretty early in the morning. I'm naturally an early riser, but I also have um, three kids. 
kids. And after having three kids, my my morning started even earlier. And I decided mm-hmm. I would just keep it super early <laughs> because, you know, it ended up being the one part of the day where I was just alone, where I had some alone time. And so it could start as early as like four, you know, or five, but it could start around there is when my morning starts. And then, you know, first thing I do, unfortunately, is look at my phone. I look at my phone. I look at my email. But after that, I I work out. And so I just work out downstairs. Um, I have a a bike and I do that for anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. And that's just kind of my time to kind of think about my day, relax a little bit. I might watch something on YouTube and just kind of get myself prepared for the day. And after I work out get dressed for the day. Sometimes I might meditate and then, you know, try to just jump into doing some writing in the morning time. And, you know, after I do my writing, that's when I can actually like go to work and do the other stuff. But getting that morning writing time is really important for me because I feel like later parts of the day, I might be a little bit distracted or you're just thinking about other things. You have interruptions, you have emails, you have this. Um, But I think, you know, early in the mornings are great because then I can kind of get into a flow Right. And I have that period of time where, you know, other people probably aren't awake um, and, you know, I could just try to get things done during those couple of hours. And so that's, I think, like a typical morning for me. There is power in those early hours when the mm-hmm. rest of the world is sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's interesting because you, you do it for a couple of reasons. But one is like you want that solo time, that quiet time before your kids, your three kids are up. And they need your attention. They need you to to get help them get ready for the day. So it, it's it's that self awareness and that self love, that self care that actually motivates you to keep doing it, right? To keep waking up at that Absolutely. time. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Moving the body first thing in the morning does not only wakes you up, but it kind of gets the blood flow. It it gets you thinking, and it, it gets it energizes you. Um, I find it if um, the more before I work out in the morning, there's more stamina, right? You you notice you can go on longer. Yeah, yeah. Like I I, I notice the difference when I work out in the morning and when I don't. And you know, it used to be that I would do it like a few days a week and that was my routine. Now I just do it every day because I realized if I interrupt it one day, the next day I could find like a justification not to do it again. And so it, it just ended up being kind of like the standard do I thing I do every day and it, it feels good. Yeah. And that's how you build habits. You, you don't want to skip a day. You want to keep at it because muscle memory kicks in. Exactly. It becomes automatic. So very nice. Tell us um, how can we connect with you? Where can we find you? Sure. So you can connect with me on my um, website. So it's india2c.org and 2C is T-H-U-S-I. And there you can get my contact information and I'm looking forward to, to hearing from folks. Very nice. Thank you so much, India, for coming on the show. It has been a pleasure having you. Thank you for sharing your insight and your your current work and your writings. Uh, I mean, I agree with you with how to solve criminalization and with how to, to tackle it. It's effective resources, putting them in the right places. And so thank you for coming in and sharing it with us this morning. Thank you for having me. All right, morning enthusiasts, that's it for today's show. Thank you for tuning in. If you love the best morning routine ever podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or Google Play. While you're at it, tell a friend about the show. 
be sure to visit bestmorningroutineever.com and our Facebook group to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic free bonus content. Until next time. When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See JDPower.com slash awards for 2022 details.